This week on the Eldritch Lawcast, Logan from RuneSmith joins us once again to talk about campaign settings, NPCs, and are saving throws really necessary? All that and more right now. Hello everybody and welcome to this week's episode of the Eldritch Lawcast, your favourite D&D and tabletop role-playing game podcast. My name is Ben Byrne and I am here with Dale Kingsmill, Sean Merwin, James Hake is out this week unfortunately, so we have welcomed back Logan Reese to the podcast. Logan, thank you for jumping in this week uh, and oh, I have to easy. ask you... If you had a favourite D&D campaign setting, uh, it can be official, it can be published, it can be unpublished, mm. what would it be? Well, I think the correct answer would be my own. But if I were to go for official, I really like unique settings. So I think my top would be Eberron, but I really like what Spelljammer conceptually offers D&D. What's that? Like, what, what uniqueness about it do you really love? Uh, it's mostly just like Treasure Planet for D&D is, is really just kind of the, the aesthetic and a lot of the design. So I think there's an interesting territory to explore there, but I don't know it that well. Treasure Planet is one of those weird movies. I, I know people have like TV shows or movies that they saw when they were really little and then they can't find anything online about them and feel like they were a fever dream that they may be made up. And Treasure Planet was one of those mm. for me. Uh, Dale Kingsmill, if you yeah. had a favorite campaign setting. See, that's tricky because I I don't know enough to know. Uh, I don't think I know really any uh, D&D official settings except the ones that are from Magic the Gathering. So, I mean, I guess them. <laughs> I really <laughs> like Ravnica. I love, I love those MTG sets. So I've never played D&D in those settings, but I'm a big fan of Theorus and Ravnica mm. as... Magic yeah. the Gathering settings. So does that count? I don't yeah, know. Absolutely. I need to know more about D&D. No, absolutely. I mean, I, I feel like I'm in a similar boat because I like I played a lot of homebrew uh, setting earlier. So like I'm definitely not an expert in the Forgotten Realms or any campaign setting. But have you, have you set things in Ravnica or Theros specifically or have you more pulled things out of them to use in your game? <laughs> I, I mean, I guess I've pulled things out of them. I, I'm such a homebrew DM. I really am playing in my own setting at all times. And if I pull stuff, it's like trace elements rather than like chunks of world, which is just terrible for this question. It's just terrible. It really is. <laughs> uh, the next couple of minutes might I, be... I uh... wrote stuff for the Theros setting. Does that count? Yeah, of course that counts. I did a... I, yeah, okay. Uh, can, can we get an elevator pitch of your main setting? Of my main setting? Yeah. Um, uh, yes, I think that I would describe it as um, the magic in the mundane. So I like everything to feel quite muddy, but like there's magic in everything. Just, just little bits of it. I like it. And that that magic is sort of uncontrollable and um, untamable. Hmm. <laughs> there you go. I think... I, I've always enjoyed your, and I know that uh, you're well known for your phrase, vague and evocative. Uh, and I've always enjoyed that phrase and think I would very much enjoy exploring your campaign world. Uh, Sean Merwin, what is your favourite campaign setting? And yes, uh, to answer the question for you, it can be one that you have worked on or written for. <laughs> I, I, I have not written a lot for one campaign, but I have written a little for a lot of different campaign worlds. I feel like gotcha. each setting has its own special focus. So like Logan said, unique is, is cool. So if you want to run like a gothic horror campaign, you can't really do much better than Ravenloft. Uh, mm. But I think I'm contractually obligated to say that Grim Hollow <laughs> is got to be my favorite D&D world setting, followed closely by Eberron, Dark Sun, Ravenloft. Yeah, all the other ones. Yeah. Somebody, all of them. Somebody did all ask in them. the Discord what uh, my favourite campaign setting was and people joked that I'm contractually obliged to say Grim Hollow. I'm very much like you, Dale. I had my own campaign setting uh, that I worked on um, that I used almost exclusively uh, all the time. And then when I started working at Ghostfire and started reading into Etheris and Grim Hollow, I was like... 
these are so similar. The things that I love about my cam campaign setting are so present in Aetheris and Grim Hollow um, that I think I will just adopt this and use it as my campaign setting again. And the things right, that I well love... It's because there is that balance, right, of like, mm. if you make up the world yourself, then you know everything about it. There's no chance of like forgetting a bunch of the information because it's just mm. in your head. Mm. But if you make it up yourself, then you have to make it up yourself. So if there is a <laughs> setting that's close to it, maybe it is easier to like adopt it. Yeah, I, I mean, that was part of the reason I started a homebrew setting in the first place was so that if anybody ever asked me any questions, I didn't have to do a deep dive into a wiki to figure out what the answer was. I could just say, this is the answer, you know, and also craft it to be um, especially about things that I like and, and want to put into a campaign. Um, and, but the, the flip side is... I had players that wanted to play in a game that I was going to run and they were uh, like full on interviewing me as their dungeon master. They like took me out to lunch one day. They were like, all right, we want to know more about this campaign setting of yours. We want to know, you know, where we would Love fit that. in and, and how we would, would enjoy this campaign. Um, and their big problem was, and I think it's a totally legitimate fine problem to have, that they couldn't spend the time to do their own deep dive into the setting on a wiki or That's a website true. or a blog or something like that because it was all basically in here. Um, and so, you know, there's obviously that advantage is that the players can do their own reading and, you know, take time away from the table to do a deep exploration of the world and, and figure out specifically where their character's from. I wanted to talk a little bit about campaign settings, what makes a good campaign setting, what attracts us to specific campaign settings. Um, Dale, did you know about Theros before you were working on the book? This was obviously established in Magic the Gathering before well, I it was mean, ported I, Just into for fighting. clarity for those listening, I didn't work on the Theros book. I worked on my own supplement with gotcha. <laughs> Jeremy Malul, which, um, gotcha. which was a lot of fun uh, because I did. I did know about Theros. I was um, very, very much into that. It was like within my first year of being on YouTube, I, I was making a video about Theros and hmm. thankfully I had the connections to, to be sent a bunch of cards and it's the most exciting <laughs> thing that's ever happened to me, ripping into all of those, all of those booster packs. Um, <laughs> greatest thing in the world. I, I genuinely adore the Theros setting, but there is this tricky thing when you translate it to uh, a Dungeons and Dragons campaign setting, right? Like they, they have to make choices. They have to give it a map. And I, myself, I'm still a little bit mad about the map that they gave Theros as a setting. And I'm a little bit mad about the choices they made. Like, they, they didn't include Xanagos, who's the god of sort of revelry and chaos, in the original Theros set. Because uh, as you get to Nyx Reborn, Xanagos has been defeated. They've replaced him with... I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> but, but I was mad about that because I'm like, this is the most exciting period of time in this campaign setting. Why would you take that away from me? Give me a stat block for Xenogos. Anyway. What is it? Because uh, uh, Theros is very like Greek mythology inspired, is it not? Is that, and obviously you have deep roots in your love of mythology. Is that what attracted you to the setting thematically? A hundred percent. And um, the the initial uh, Theros set from MTG is so well researched. That team got it. They understood the, the sort of underlying threads throughout Greek mythology. And, uh, and they made their choice of like, what period of mythology they were going to be inspired by, because you can end oh. up with, with really bizarre sort of clashing elements if you try to pull something from early Greek mythology and stick it together with something from late Greek mythology. <laughs> but this Xenagos through line really ties in with sort of the rise of the Dionysian cult um, in, a, in a really clever way. They just, they, it's, it does such a good job of being inspired by Greek mythology without just being, you know, a ripoff of it. Um. <laughs> I could talk forever, so I'm really trying to <laughs> bring myself to in, rein myself in. Well, I guess, you know, the, the question that this raises for me, and we get asked this a lot in our Discord, is like, you know, where is lore for, for Etheris, for Grim Hollow? It's a setting that is relatively young in terms of its publication history. It's only been around for, I think, three years, maybe two years, something like that. Um, and the only real official publications for it are the Campaign Guide, the Player's Guide, and now the Monster Grimoire Um and so, you know, players are frequently hungry for more lore, but a lot of it is left open deliberately to let players play within. Because if you if you concrete the lore too much, if you make it yeah. too definitive, 
what has happened in certain specific places, then there's not room for the players to play around in. Um, you know, do what do we have examples? What can we think of as a discussion point about like how much law is too much? How much is not enough to create a, a setting that feels um, detailed and feels, uh, uh, you know, like some place you could really exist in, but still leaves enough room to play within? I think um, it really depends on where you want to place the gravity of the adventure that you're telling with the players at that time, uh, sure. like just on the timeline. Because every historical event is kind of like a heartbeat of that living world. It's a major rise and fall like a breath. I don't think you should have more than three at most, like historical major events or major time periods that the players will have to learn because then you start to get muddled and all these different elements from each of them start crossing and interacting and it just becomes this massive branching tree of what like why is this here what happened here and then you have to find a good way to tell that story so i think probably a more important question once we address this one is uh, not how much to have but how do you present it yeah sure I mean, that's the the challenge, right, is onboarding players yeah. into a new campaign setting. And that's the challenge. I don't know if you've experienced this, Dale, but with um, presenting a campaign setting that is homebrewed and is your own, when the players ask a question, mm -hmm. you can give them an answer, but also the players have no experience outside of what you've told them. So... Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, it's it's tricky in a lot of ways just because they can only hold so much information in their head and they're already trying yeah, totally. to... The, the, thing, the things that are right in front of them that are relevant to their characters and their story and what is happening this session, those are the things that they're already trying to grab onto and keep hold of, which is hard enough. I'm terrible at taking notes. Um, <laughs> but then to add on top of that to be like, okay, now here's something that happened 5,000 years ago. That's a lot to put on a person. Um, so I actually think that that's brilliant advice to, to just pick three big broad strokes things it's similar to what i do when i'm talking about creating a pantheon of gods i'm like you can you can get into all the little details on the side but the only story that matters if you want to create sort of a, a religious pantheon is this one story that is common throughout all world mythologies right because it is a simple story that everyone knows there's this person they get betrayed and there's the rising hope who comes to fill the place, right? That is the story that we are all familiar with and keeping it to that one story makes it something that is easy to remember and still makes it feel kind of real and lived in. Gotcha. I'm also realizing, just because I've made so many of these basically videos where I just <laughs> go through the very simple history and kind of structure of certain monsters and I found in so many of them that they cheat out of having all this complex history by saying in a long forgotten like civilization or a, something that <laughs> is dead to history. So you just start deleting as much as you can, except for the stuff that is present right now. Nagas right. are a great example of that. They have no history at all. See, that's interesting. Sean, you just did a whole monster book. How much lore did you wind up including with your monsters? I, if I was going to put a percentage on it, I would say 18.6. Uh, That's a good percentage. Because, <laughs> That's fair. Yes, it's just off the top of my head. Well, I, I <laughs> just recently, getting ready to work on the next Ghostfire Gaming project, I collected all the material about certain regions from the world to put into a document to share with designers. And so as I'm going through the books and pulling this information out, including monsters from this particular area, you know, I got a close up look about, you know, how thick the lore is in this book as compared to other worlds. And, uh, you know, as Ben said, it's, it's a new world. We've only had three books and one book was a player's book, which didn't create a lot of new lore. So it is very important for a role playing game setting not to shackle the players or the game masters with too much lore. One thing, if you have the stomach for it and you're a DM, a game master, or a player, and you want to create your own world, there is a game out there called Microscope, which allows yes, you to create, to create your <laughs> own world as a game. And if you want your players to know what the history of the world is, the important high-level aspects of, of your world, play that game with them 
as part of a your pre-game ceremonies. And that right. way, the character, the players are creating important elements of the game. They will understand the world. They will understand these larger epochs, these larger eras. They will understand these very important events because they've helped create them. Then, as the game master, you can create the world from the inside out, from the bottom up, create the city that they're going to start in. You'll always have that connection to the larger themes, the larger story, but you can bring in the pieces that are important as threads rather than hitting someone with a big wet towel of lore. <laughs> yeah. You know what else? Was I, I, you know what else is that I recently realized that Microscope is also brilliant for presenting character backstory to the DM, um, mm -hmm. which, I mean, is a kind of law, really. Um, so I, <laughs> I recommend I found out about this thing. It's called, I just looked it up. Uh, it's called Utgar's Chronicles, which is a, a web app, which is just like a way to play uh, microscope digitally. But it also it's also really, really handy because you can kind of um, define eras. So you can be like, this is my character's childhood. This is my character's, you know, first job. This is whatever. Pick these eras of time. But the whole way through, you can decide whether that was a dark period or a light period on the whole. Was this like a happy time for them or was this a terrible time for them? And you can just do these really broad strokes things that your DM can look at on the fly and go, oh, I get it. Like, it doesn't have to get super detailed, but as you go down for the important things, you can, you can microscope in and you can get detailed and you could easily just apply that to, to either end of the DM screen. And it really can be very helpful. With, without knowing, and I'm sure there's listeners that are wondering as well, without knowing what microscope is, just basing it on what you have said so far, I'm going to take a guess and then you can actually tell me because I am very curious. Is it the idea that the dungeon master or, or whoever is talking about the lore is saying like this happened and then this happened and the player says tell me more about that or keep going it's like all right what happened next or tell me more about that is that basically it because that's very similar to a drama game but anyway what is microscope that's my N question no. M microscope <laughs> doesn't have a game master uh, my, uh mm -hmm. it okay. it sets up you first you give the elevator pitch of what what are we creating here uh, you, there's also a step for creating things that will or will not be in the world. Mm. Uh, they call it like the ingredient list or something like that. And, and then yeah. you build periods of time. Uh, you, and you set those periods of time as either dark or light, whether it's a, you know, a net positive or a net negative to whatever setting yeah. you're creating. And then within that uh, period of time, you set events and then events can also then have scenes, but you are building off of other people's work. So if somebody creates a period, you can put a scene within that, but you can't like build a period, a scene, uh, a period, an event, and a scene all at the same time. You count on gotcha. other people's work to inform the work that you're creating when you create this world or setting. Yeah, yeah it, so so it, Sean might have, you know, pinned down a period that said the fall of the such and such empire, and I might create like an event within that is like the storming of the palace, you know, um, gotcha. and it just takes shape as you go. I played this once without the rule book, and we made like the entire history of a world based on one sandwich, or like the, <laughs> uh, all these cultures racing to create the perfect sandwich. But it plays a lot like a, a writer's room from scratch where you only have a bunch of postcards. Mm -hmm. That's all you use to play. Yep. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, is it better, and I know that this is like, I'm, I'm asking a deliberately insipid question here. Is it better to design the world as the dungeon master and because i know that a lot of dms i'm one of them loves to just like work out every detail themselves and be like all right this is what this is this is what that is this is what this is and or do something that is entirely like all right players let's sit down and let's create the world together and you know create specific things because the one like this is maybe a problem that may be unique to me and dms that are uh you know like me in terms of wanting to create an incredibly detailed world that exists within their brain. But what if a player creates something or, or the group creates something that is going to be contradictory to what the DM is planning for the campaign? Or should you go into microscope with just like no solid plans, just a, a rough pitch of what you want to do? 
I think generally, yeah, you should go into it without expectations. Yeah. I think there are, if you're going to use this as a, as a law tool for your D&D campaign, rather, if you're going to play microscope, you're going to play microscope. But if you're going, <laughs> gotcha. to, yeah. if you're going to play microscope with the intent of then using it for a, for a campaign world in a different game, uh, I think there are basically two ways to go about it. Either you decide from the get-go we're all creating this world together and you just play microscope, or yeah. you as the DM sit down and you play a solo game of microscope and <laughs> yeah. figure it all out and then hand it to your players and say, this is it. <laughs> like, gotcha, gotcha. So it could be used as a world yeah. crafting tool, but it's... Yeah, template system. Right. And, and what's good about it is a lot of what you get is very general. So even mm-hmm. as the game master, you're not being told these very detailed things you're getting a general flow of a a world over from a set period of time um, it doesn't have to start at the creation of the world it could start at any point so you can actually set your game beyond the microscope game and just keep that history you're still mm. creating all of the details of the world as the game master but the care you don't have to now explain to the players this is what happened in the history of my world because they were there yeah Mm-hmm. Which is gotcha. Which is totally invaluable, just in terms of like coming at everything as just a person who's a total mythology nerd. The way that um, mythologies and histories and things play into everyday life, uh, it it really only works because it's like baked into your culture. It's baked into the mm. way that stories have been told, <laughs> where you've grown up for forever, right? So like I can. I mean, listen to a song and know that it's, you know, referencing Icarus or something, you know? Um, and so that, that like, baked-in understanding of the stories is kind of important to how law would actually work and how that it would actually be delivered in a setting. If you want realism, I mean, that's not necessarily what everyone's going for, but, you know, it's, it's, it's less Skyrimian where you wander around and there's a book and it goes, here's the history of the Daedric Princess. <laughs> um, but... <laughs> it's really hard to implant that kind of knowledge in your players. Like they don't want to read a history book before going into a game. So something like Microscope, having them be part of that creative process, it's like when a DM creates their own setting and so they automatically know all this stuff about it. The players get to be part of that and they also get to just kind of have that knowledge at game start. Yeah, sure. Yeah, okay. I'm getting a clearer picture of what Microscope is. I didn't realize it was like a role-playing game in in and of itself. I thought it was sort of a a tool (laughs) for scaffolding, um, you know, like world creation That's how I use it, but also it's very fun to play as a (laughs) role-playing game. (laughs) Well, uh, it kind of leads me into a question, which, again, I wonder how you approach this, Dale, being someone who, you know, heavily works within a homebrew world, but also for, you know, Logan does too, right? (laughs) Uh, I'm not alone I don't, here. I don't <laughs> no, you're not. Uh, look, games, I'm with yeah, you. I, I do have a lot of uh, settings and stuff put together. Um, how how enforceable? And this is like a, a question about personal preference, right? It's obviously not a question about which is better. But you know, I often the homebrew setting that I have very similar to Grim Hollow in terms of like it's meant to be low fantasy, dark fantasy realistically there you know there aren't these anthropomorphic races like elephant people and cat people and bird people just walking around the place um ganasi ganasi i'm not sure how it's pronounced is that a gif versus gif debate i'm not sure but anyway who knows um they're like they you know they don't really you, you don't have races that magical kind of like wandering around it's just everyday people in a sense um you know existing in a world where magic also uh, happens to exist. And my reasoning for kind of wanting to run a game like that, what I tell players when they ask why, is because if you if you meet a vampire in the game, it's going to be far more horrific if everybody else thinks of themselves as mere mortals rather than having, you know, we meet, uh, we, we meet a mind flayer, a man with a squid for a head. Well, that doesn't really matter because, you know, Barry's a cat and we don't even know what Jerry is and Simon's <laughs> like turning into How like this horrible How does a vampire thing. drink the blood of, of something that is mostly fire? Yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. Exactly that. And so I suppose the question is like how um, enforcing do you like to get as a dungeon master in terms of having that player that invariably comes to you and says, I understand what the world setting is, but I really want to play an Arakokra for X, Y, Z reasons. Um, how flexible 
are you with that sort of thing? Because it obviously depends, you know, the the races like Warforged, for example, exist, uh, it, pardon me, exist very famously in Eberron. Do Warforged exist in Ravenloft? Like, I, I don't know the answer off the top of my head, but uh, yeah. Yeah, it, uh, I, I probably, my personal preference falls pretty close to yours. Um, I do, I do have some, you know, pretty remarkable races in the mix, but I, I do like that sort of, more i mean i i described my setting as magical mundane earlier right like i i want it to be more within the zone of humanity um so i'm similar to you but it, it is tricky because it's a balance of you being a player in the game as well and and you having the right to say look I'm running the game and this is the kind of setting that I'm going to have fun in this is the kind of fantasy that I want to play in um, and your players can choose whether that's for them, choose whether it's not for them. But there's usually a, a sort of spot in the middle where you can try and figure out what it is they find fun about the idea of playing as an elephant person, right? Like, mm. what what is it that you're looking for? What is the fantasy that you're trying to get at by playing a, an elephant person? And through conversation, you can try to find compromises, find things that, you know, might be similar. Like, maybe you have Warforged in your setting, but you don't have elephant people. I know they have a name. What is it? Loxodon? Something like that? Yeah. Thank Loxodons, you. So, yeah. Basically yeah. Loxodons. Um, so... <laughs> Uh, you know, maybe they just like the idea of being this huge, out of place, really strong looking weirdo. And maybe being a Warforged would kind of fulfill that as well. So maybe you can, oh. through conversation, find those compromises. But also maybe you get to the point where you just go, okay, it looks like we're not aligned on this particular campaign. Um, maybe I can run something that matches your fantasy next time. Yeah. And which is, I think, just another vote for keeping campaigns relatively short. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. You did kind of lightfoot around the fact that it is there's a compromise, which means it is kind of an argument, whether it's yeah. under the surface or whether people are like, "No, I really want to play this, or I'm not going to play the game," kind of thing. And it can it can definitely get to that level of tension. So someone is going to need to compromise, and it takes a lot of tact to to reach a point where okay, I'm letting my player do this, and I'll have to change my campaign for it. Like I'll have to make these adjustments for them or they're going to have to make the adjustments for me, but I offer them something that, mm. you know, is an effective replacement. Like you said, making a Warforged instead of a Loxodon. Yeah. Mm. And I mean, it's also worth noting that it probably won't kill you, especially if you're keeping your campaigns short. I'm campaigning yeah. for short campaigns, <laughs> um, especially if you keep your, your campaigns in little sections. It won't kill you to be like, all right, this isn't really how my setting works, yeah. but this player really wants to play that thing. Let's just make it work for this one campaign. You know, it makes it, the, it, the problem feel less permanent. Yeah, exactly. I, I always advocate for um, GMs who are deeply into homebrew, whether settings or, or rules or anything, to figure out what are like the five rules that are absolutely core to your fun. Mm. And those are the only ones that I would draw a hard line on. Mm. Um, I really respect yeah. that. I like that a lot. Just mm. having yeah. your hills to die on and then being able to be flexible everywhere right? else. Yeah. Because yeah. you're all here for fun. You're all here for fun. Mm -hmm. For sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I often find similar compromises of like, oh, you want to play a tabaxi or a, a person that is a cat? All right. Let's say that you are the, you're not a tabaxi, you are the tabaxi. You, you know, you've yeah. suffered a curse or mm. maybe you were born <laughs> this way, but you just don't know why. Or, you know, and that can be part of your character's story in terms of, um, you know, uh, how they how they evolve in the world and how the world sees them. I remember I had a lizard folk in a campaign and he was like, the one lizard folk in the party, which always felt weirdly out of place, but we made it work by saying, yeah, he's from some deep dark swamp that nobody's ever heard of and kind of slithered out at one point. And now everybody reacts to him like, what the hell is that? Um, Sean, have you, uh, over your years of experience- have, Has anyone ever TV, said, what the hell is that when they look at me? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody jumped out of their skin and run out screaming? Yeah. Yes. It happens quite often. But what was your question? <laughs> uh, well, I suppose, like, have you dealt with, with these sort of things in similar ways? Do you think it's that important to, to maintain the, the sanctity of the setting, so to speak? It, it all depends. I, I think everyone has said it as perfectly as they can. Uh, running an organized play campaign like uh, the Adventurers League for Wizards mm. of the Coast, mm. they want everything in their 
repertoire to be legal. They want people to be able to play everything in all their books. So you're going to sit at a table with a Loxodon, a Warforged, a, you know, some sort of mostly undead PC, you know, a Hobgoblin, and you name it, it's, it's out there. <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. And, you know, and so you just have to, you just have to roll with it because mm. the adventure may be, you know, there is the whole point of the adventure is that you're going to be trapped underwater and, oh, wait, none of these characters breathe. What are we going to do about that? Uh, yeah. So, you know, it's, it's just, it's, uh, it's a thing that the further along you go in a game, game's life cycle, and those, the more player options there are, the more you're going to have to deal with it. And you yeah. just, just have fun, have, have fun with it the best way you can. If it turns into some silly uh, moments, roll with those silly moments because it's 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 a game yeah if you get mad about it the only person that's suffering through the game ends up being you Mm -hmm. wiser words never spoken logan reese we're gonna (laughs) we're gonna put that in a quote somewhere um speaking of having fun and the dungeon master's fun um we got two questions one was from the discord one was uh from an email from chris um and perry hexus on the discord kind of asking similar the questions were completely different, but they were both about NPCs. And so that's why I'm kind of rolling them uh, together because I think, you know, similar to the conversation that we just had where we touched on the Dungeon Master's fun, the game needs to be fun for the DM as well. They're just another player at the table, uh, realistically. The NPCs can often take uh, the roughest brunt of the player's shenanigans, let's say. Um, And so Chris's question was... When do you stat an NPC? How many NPCs do you give stats to? If you're coming up with a village, how do you figure out, um, you know, whether they need a stat block or not based on the idea that the party will inevitably end up harassing them or, um, you know, right. intimidating them or, or even just trying to deceive them? How do you determine what the DC on a deception check against poor shopkeeper Barry uh, happens to be? Which I kind of spun out into, you know, how much history, how much lore do, do individual NPCs need? Um and then Perry Hexus's question was about uh, representing smart slash scheming NPCs. How do you represent an NPC in a campaign who's, you know, pati- probably particularly villainous, who's meant to be able to outsmart the party, who's meant to be this, like, you know, Ozymandias genius-style individual, um, and yet you will never have the same brain capacity as six other people sitting at the table with you. Um, so I just wanted to turn that into a question about NPCs. How, Dale, how do you stat NPCs? When do you stat NPCs? I uh, am of the school of trying to avoid statting <laughs> as much as possible. Um, partly mm. because I I do believe in the superstition that if it has a stat block, the players can and will fight and kill it. Sure. Um, which I, you know... I. I mean, really, that applies mostly to if you want this monster to be an unbeatable monster, don't give it stats because they will find a way to kill it. But I think for me, I'm also like, I can't give this barkeep stats because somehow the players will know and they will fight them. Um, so I I don't tend to stat uh, anyone up who I don't intend to be in combat at some point. Uh, what I do instead is I, a long time ago, made up a thing that I call the build a baddie table, uh, which is intended for just like the players pick a fight with someone that you didn't expect them to pick a fight with but oh. you still want that combat to be interesting right and so it's it's kind of a table that just splits things up into um on the fly you get to go is this character strong skilled or smart okay great well they're skilled great here we go this is the category and it'll tell you sort of a, a, an ad hoc armor class you can choose from a short list of like weapons or attacks that are their base attack and then there'll also be a section for special things that just you know give them you know uncanny dodge or you know <laughs> little things that make it feel like maybe this was a planned combat because okay. they have some extra yeah. ability that makes the combat a little bit more complicated than that um, that's my go-to and I think uh, the dungeon coach on YouTube actually took the build a batty table and uh, and ran with it and made this huge thing somewhere out there so it's it's now more full and powerful than ever (laughs) 
Yeah, I, I think similarly that, you know, statting NPCs, you, you're going to drive yourself crazy if you try to stat every single NPC in a village. And more often than not, the players are going to win. So you just say, you know, if they're determined to fight an NPC who's shopkeep, barkeep, beggar on the street, whoever, it's just like, yeah, you 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 rough them up. What do you want to do with them? You don't even have to roll at this point. Um, <laughs> I guess the, the thing is coming up with DCs for intimidation checks, deception checks, things like that, which you can just do kind of on the fly. Yeah, and I, it, I, it's really easy with something like 5th edition to just kind of be like, what is their good stat? Just pick mm. one stat that is their good. Are they strong? Okay, then they have proficiency gotcha. on those things, and that proficiency is plus three or whatever. Um, yeah, I think the other thing is that if you start statting up NPCs in a town, you inevitably end up accidentally making them all way more important than they need to be. <laughs> You'll be like, this barkeep is actually... A level 18 cleric and they were thrown out of their church and blow and you know it ends up being more that they can just be returns, a barkeep yeah. yeah what does the npc need to do in the adventure that it that you're running if they need yeah. to be fought stat them up if they need to be protected and they're going to be in danger stat them up because then we do need to know what their armor class is and how many hit yeah, points yeah. they have uh, but if their sole purpose is to provide information to the character, all you need to know is, is it easy to get that information out of them or not? Uh, what's their personality? What's one physical trait about them that you can, uh, mm -hmm. that you can show to the character, show to the players to make them memorable, but just know their role <laughs> and write down just enough to be able to play that role. Um, I am very familiar with the narrative rule. If it can happen, it will happen. So not, not necessarily to tell everyone to over-prepare, but always have kind of like Dale does and like a lot of basic just D&D publishing goes, you have a character and then you have a standardized stat block. Like, oh, they're a soldier, but maybe there's like a tweak here and just kind of have that baseline ready and then adjust it if you feel like it needs to be adjusted in the moment. Like mm. if they have something really close to their heart that the players are trying to learn, you don't let them learn that because he has a charisma of 10. He, mm. he, like you immediately start buffing up his abilities to defend something that he cares about. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's not really a matter of preparing for everyone to die and making unique <laughs> stat blocks for every single shopkeeper. It's just, you know, be half prepared. Kind of building off of that, the one thing I tend to do, particularly when I'm NPCing a village, building the stats for a village or a city or a town or whatever is like, you know, come up with the locations that the party are likely to visit. And if they're, um, you know, municipal locations, I think that's the word I'm looking for <laughs> in terms of like, you know, a tavern, a shop, a blacksmith, a, um, a, a stables where they might buy a horse. Most of those NPCs I might just write a name down for in the prep when I'm deciding what the locations are so that I'm not making it up on the fly. But then I'll pick like maybe one or two of those NPCs, not every single one in the village, just one or two of them to build out. And it's not an exhaustive like lore history about them. It's just two or three things that make them different from everybody else in the village so that they stand out a little bit. An example was a, an NPC who was terrified of vampires. Um, nobody else in the village was worried about vampires. Nobody else was superstitious. There were no vampires around. But this person was convinced that everybody was vampire. So he had like all these locks on his door. He made people drink holy water before they were allowed inside the smith. He had to very formally invite them into the house um, uh, uh, so that they could prove that they weren't vampires. Although maybe that made prove that they were <laughs> vampires if they needed the invite. But anyway, you get the point. So it's just kind of like... Finding a few quirks for one or two NPCs without going overboard um, yeah. and and building it out too much. Yeah. And my favorite thing to do oh. to remind myself. Oh, sorry. Uh, I was just going to say my favorite thing to do to remind myself that not everyone has to be super special as an NPC is to include a line that is class. And instead of writing fighter, rogue, ranger or whatever, I literally will write barkeep messenger right. you know it's like there there are no special features except they can make a mean drink like That's they have cool. proficiency with cooking utensils i don't write those things out but you know what i mean i'm just reminding mm. myself this person is literally just a thief not a rogue just a thief yeah sure sorry logan what were you gonna say uh three years ago i made a video that i think is actually a really good reference for that specifically it's not like statting the characters out it's just how to write a character uh, one that maybe doesn't matter or is about to matter 
And it takes like five minutes just to throw together like, um, you know, what, what are their hobbies? What is their uh, current goal? What is like their dream? And what is one secret that they have? It's just like a bullet list of a few things that kind of help you prepare for whatever direction a conversation goes with this character. Generally, I'll provide like a list of things that the NPC might talk about that the party would want to yeah. know about. So rumors give them are, yeah, exactly that. Yeah. yeah. Give them like three rumors that they know um, mm-hmm. and generally try to give those rumors in a way that kind of points them at another NPC or a place to, to go and investigate. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. and then usually at least one of them, that's just kind of like background, like, oh, have you heard the news of like, the Lord has marched on the blah, 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 blah. There will be battle in the morn. And that's like, you know, six miles away, but it gives texture to the world. Yeah. And you have the dragon age approach of like them having opinions on the goings on. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Especially when you're running like a campaign that has that, um, you know, moral ambiguity, the party could side with either side and there's no wrong answer. It's just both sides have an opinion about X thing. And so I'll have a bunch of NPCs, you know, scattered throughout the village that are like, oh yeah, no, the Lord, he's gonna, he's terrible. He taxes us too much. He's absolutely horrible. We hate him. I want to side with the rebels if I could. And the, uh, you know, somebody else, the blacksmith or the, the dude horsing the shoes, Causing the shoes, shoeing the horses is what I meant to say. Uh, kind of going like, oh, no, the, the rebels are, are, are terrible. You know, they're violent and criminal and they do this, that and the other. And so, you know, they get a, a complete picture of what's kind of going on to be able to make up their own minds. When you think about it, um, horsing the shoes happens just as much as shoeing the horses. The shoes get horsed. That's true. <laughs> Is that because the shoes Arguably are technically under even. the horse? I'm I'm confused. Yeah, well, I mean, you you put the shoes on the horse, the horse got shod. But if you put the horse on the shoes, <laughs> the shoes <laughs> got. You can horsed. do it one way or the other. It's a different process. <laughs> okay. Really, cool. it's all a matter of perspective. Good the theory to, of relativity. Good to know. <laughs> good to know. Um, Sean, do you, what's your approach when you're trying to come up with NPCs on the fly or something happens that's unexpected? Do you have the list of names or traits or attributes? What I generally do is think of a word that would describe that NPC. Oh, that it's uh, he's a quaint librarian, so his name is Quince. Uh, oh yeah, he's <laughs> he's a Hardy fighter, so his his name is Hardy, uh, and it it sort of reinforces the the uh, personality, the description, while making it a name that's really easy to uh, to come up with. Yeah. I like that. I like that a lot. That's kind of. Um... So I do the usual, like, you've pre-written a list of character names, um, but instead of organizing mine by, like, human names, halfling names, orc names, I um, do mine based on main stat, because for me, I look at a name and I'm like, Quincy is a, a smart or a nimble name. It's not the name for the brick. You know what I mean? You're not about to fight a brick wall named Quincy. Um, so I make my lists and attach them to uh, different yeah, all character All brick walls stats. are named Tiny. Oh, yeah, that's true, actually. That's a really good point. Um, but, yeah, no, it just makes it really easy to look at it and be like, oh, wise, this is a, this is a wise character. Their name is Heather because that feels like a wise name, you know. Um, gotcha. But I, I really like that approach. I've never sat down with the list of names, but uh, and maybe this is kind of what you were saying, Sean. I do make up names on the fly because I find I can generally do it all right. But every now and again, somebody will be like, what's this guy's name? And I'll be like, his name is... Argo, Argo. That's and as long as you say it confidently yes. the second time, that they're fine with it. One thing not to worry about is making a silly name. I had a high school teacher who was about to have a child, and he was crowdsourcing the class, and he said, "I don't want to make a name that could be taken badly." And we're like, "It doesn't matter. We're going to the people will make up words <laughs> to pick on your child." Yeah. And he named his son Tucker. So we had nothing to worry about. There's Ooh. nothing that you could say with that. So just make the name. If people we are going to pick on it, they're going to pick on it. We had conversation last so, week. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I had a, they were in a pirate town and they're like, oh, you know, what's this pirate's name? And I'm like, his name is Justin. And so it became this whole thing about Justin the, the pirate, the most piratey of pirates uh, <laughs> named Justin. Logan, how attached do you tend to get to your NPCs? Do you, like, are you protective of them? Do you not care? They're just there that, you know, they're tools for for you to be able to create an experience for the players? 
I, I think there's definitely a divide. Like, I, I don't ever do self-inserts, but I do have a few characters that I kind of hold dear, and the rest of them I don't care. Because, like, I, I've played with a lot of parties who generally don't, like, get that invested in the world of the characters, so I, I personally just, through experience, have kind of dedicated less time to it. Do you do you ever get upset with like party tactics? Do you ever feel you know? And this might not be. I just find like personally for me, yeah, I'm just leading you into like I just want to have a complaint session for a second. Yeah. I uh, look, I don't enjoy like parties going in and being like, I want to torture the NPC. I'm going to intimidate him. I'm going to do this. Yeah. I'm going to do that. It, it reminds me of that Simpsons meme of like um, Barton Homer aiming a gun at like some kid, and the caption was like the party negotiating with the shopkeeper trying to feed his family. And, um, you know, that, that gets exhausting if you're constantly like playing through that sort of thing is your GTA approach to NPCs. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Just the, like they, they barely exist. I mean, is this something you've struggled with Dale or you just don't care? You're like, whatever. I am numb to it. Uh, mostly not even, not, not really. I mean, you, I don't know whether you can ever fully become numb to it. It's just bizarre. Sometimes the things that players will latch onto, they'll be like, I, I had them yeah. accost the, the mayor figure of this town once. Cause a crocodile had attacked, uh, during this like river festival. And one of them was like grabbing him by the collar and going, did you know about this? And it's like, it's a crocodile. How could he, what do you think he's done? I don't understand it. But, um, you know, I feel like over time I try really hard to just choose not to care about an NPC until mm. the players have decided that they care about the NPC. Then right. it feels like it's more safe to invest. <laughs> I was going to say that's a really good way to present world building too, just in general, is have all these unanswered questions and then wait for a player to ask one of them. And then Ooh, the player yeah. is suddenly, they're the one that's kind of generating these this exploration. So you don't have to set everything up ahead of time. I suppose that's fair. I just, it, it reminds me, I think you said this on an earlier episode, Dale, and maybe we were talking, having a similar conversation about, if I'm remembering correctly, empathizing recklessly. It was something like that. And I find that I do that too much with my villains where, you know, they're horrible bastard people. If I if I think of like an example from media, it's the character of Silco from Arcane. I don't know if you um if if you're all familiar, but he's this character who is utterly reprehensible. Like I don't like him as a like I think he's a great character, but I don't like him as a person. I think he's utterly yeah. reprehensible. And yet the way that the internet has kind of embraced this character and seen the positive aspects of him in his fatherliness towards Jinx and his, you know, what he wants is, in theory, a more egalitarian society between the the two cities. And, um, you know, I find I do that with my my villains a little too often where, like, it gets to the the ultimate climax of them, like, fighting him and by this point the party are frustrated and they hate this person and they really want to see them suffer and it's just like please just kill him already like <laughs> he hasn't he suffered enough i, I empathize too much with this guy stop stop he's already dead yeah, I, yeah, I have exactly. the opposite problem actually where i'll write just just a sick bastard and then I'll, I'll give him reasoning for why he's doing these things and they're all very personal and very selfish but he's so convincing that the party just falls right into his lap. Right. It's like, well, fight him. He, like you saw that he like destroyed those people and there's bodies like mountains of carcasses. Just because he's a sad little guy doesn't mean you don't <laughs> kill him. Sure. No, I, <laughs> that, I love that. That can be a little frustrating. I, I love that. I mean, I, I think, uh, Make you know. Make the that's... villain a gnome, they'll never kill him. Oh, no. Yeah. Unless the gnome has a deep oh. voice, then they'll kill him before they know anything about him. <laughs> no, they go after. I had a, a was it a gnome or a halfling? It was a it was a illusionist. So they presented themselves as first as a dragonborn because they were part of a dragon cult. They were like, "I am a dragonborn. You should fear me." Blah blah blah. But it was a gnome in the corner casting like an illusion of this dragonborn. <laughs> Pay no attention to, to the man behind the curtain. <laughs> yeah, exactly that. And then when they found out it was a gnome, they're like, "Get him! Like squash them. <laughs> they, they must be destroyed at all costs." Gnomes are evil. Yeah. Yeah. Quick yeah. before he runs under the table. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think it's because yeah. they felt like the character was like really slimy and wily at mm. that point. Yeah. Uh, dodging between things. 
speaking of dodging between things, we did have another email question that came in from Daniel. I haven't even mentioned if you want to uh, email through a question. Podcast at ghostfiregaming.com uh, is where you can do that. Daniel wrote a very long, well-thought-out email that I want to read the, um, the, the kind of cliff notes of because basically it was a takedown, if you will, of saving throws. Um, arguing that saving throws are fundamentally redundant in 5e. They don't feel great because I think I've mentioned earlier we we had a pre-gen character that was a warlock that had told the dead and new players came to the table, didn't have much fun with it because they weren't rolling the dice themselves. And when we switched it to Eldritch Blast, we found that players who were new to the game enjoyed that a lot more because it's active participation rather than saying, I do this. Does it hurt them? No? Okay, moving on. Um, so basically argued that saving throws, uh, you know, can be replaced with a t- with an attack roll against the ability uh, score, I think, of the, uh, you know, th- that's being attacked. Instead of making a strength uh, saving throw, you make an, uh, an attack against their strength score using it kind of like AC. And that anything else that requires a saving throw can just be an ability check. Instead of getting knocked prone being a strength saving throw, could you use athletics instead? Um, instead of yeah. dodging to the side, could you use, um, you know, uh, acrobatics? How do we feel about saving throws? I know they're new to 5e and that they're, you know, they're designed to basically decrunchify the game a little Are bit. Are they new to 5e? I'm pretty sure. Sh- I don't there, think so. I, there are saving throws in okay. fourth edition, definitely, and <laughs> mm. there's definitely saving throws in Pathfinder, but they are different. Um, so, saving throws in fifth edition, there is a saving throw for each ability. Yes. Yes, saving throws have been around since the original D and D game in 1974. <laughs> uh, yeah. In, I was say. in fourth, in fourth edition, however, there were not saving throws the way that they there are in fifth and in third and in second and in first. Um, gotcha. In fourth edition is really what Daniel is talking about here. You don't cast a spell on someone and they make a saving throw. You attack their reflex, their willpower, or their fortitude. Yeah. Right. And the only time you would roll a saving throw in fourth edition is if you have an ongoing effect, you can make mm-hmm. a saving throw to end that effect. So and it's a nightmare because very few things yeah. add on to your saving throw. So it's basically just uh, try and roll 10 yeah. or higher. It's basically uh, gotcha. yeah, a 45% uh, chance of failure, yes. Uh, so in, in that sense, saving throws have always been around. And yes, they are a way that some players don't like because they like to roll dice. And if you have players that like to roll dice, it is a very simple solution. Let them roll the saving throw. Uh and if you want them yeah. to feel better about rolling high, switch the switch it from basically yeah. subtract the number from twenty one, and uh, and that's the number they're shooting for. So it's it's not hard to do uh, at all. That's what you, I was going to say. The back. way that Ben was describing it, it's exactly what he just described. Is just yeah, essentially like fundamentally, all you're doing is just handing the dice over to the player. So. I, I do agree that like saving throws, they don't feel like they should, which is just like, you know, clashing wands against each other. Like we are fighting for this. It's a single handed ability and it does make sense. They absolutely shouldn't be attack rolls unless they're based on those abilities, because if everything is just an attack roll against the AC, the balance is just done. Like it's just destroyed. But yeah. Um, yeah, it is. It's funny that you can solve that so easily just by here you go. You roll. <laughs> It, it is interesting as well that when we have this conversation about saving throws, there are lots of other things that call for saving throws in 5th edition, but yeah. it is impossible to have the conversation about that mechanic without talking about magic because it is so caught up in how spellcasting feels in 5th edition. Mm-hmm. Um, part of that is because you don't want someone who is playing a spellcaster to feel like their magic doesn't happen, right? Mm -hmm. Because that sucks to feel like I'm a wizard, but I can't even make this spell work. So the idea there is the spell just happens. It absolutely goes off, but do they jump out of the way of the fireball in time? You know, Um, which then in turn leads to this thing of, 
full damage on a fail or half damage on a success, which plays into the marshals versus spellcasters thing. It gets more complicated. Um, so it is a tricky thing. And then on top of that, you, you have to consider that trade-off. Is it worth the trade-off of, I mean, Sean's basically solved this already, but just hmm. to like break it down, it's hmm. it sort of starts with that trade-off of, uh, do you want them to feel like their magic works like they are absolutely competent at casting magic and no matter what the spell happens or do you want them to have fun rolling dice at the table on their turn mm. um so you got that kind of dissonance between the real world and the game world which is um where things start to get a little complicated i think it needs to be noted that one of the big complaints against fourth edition was that spellcasters had to make attack rolls against a defense and it felt just like playing a fighter and in my dnd i don't want that i want fighters to feel like fighters and wizards to feel like wizards as dale just said so the thing that daniel wants that makes absolutely perfect sense is one of the reasons why fourth edition was loathed i always assumed that the the half damage on a hit on a successful save versus failed save for spellcasting was also because spellcasting is a limited resource. It affects mm -hmm. the balance if it's just, uh, no, you miss, you know, like it doesn't do yeah. anything and you've used this resource, um, which is That's why true. like when people are like, they're like, all right, I'm casting, um, you know, chromatic orb and I'm going to do it at, I'm going to do it at a higher level and, you know, hopefully this goes off and roll their dice and there's always that like, yeah, or... Uh, if right. it doesn't happen to work because they don't get to make the choice like a paladin does about whether they pump all their dice right, into right, the right. attack before or after it hits. Yeah, and it's also worth noting things like uh, if you watch Exandria Unlimited, which was um, the, the mm. short sort of mini series within the critical role setting but run by um, Abria Iyengar, um, Matt Mercer was playing in that game and he has just a history, I guess he brushed up against Will Wheaton, um, he has a terrible history of every time he plays as a character in one of their one-shots, he just rolls terribly the whole time. Mm -hmm. He never gets a good roll. So he deliberately, in Exandria Unlimited, has chosen a character who is a sorcerer who all of their spells are things that the enemy has to roll a save for <laughs> because he doesn't want... It, it sucks to roll that check and get a one. Just like I've complained about with fighters before, it sucks to be like, my whole thing is that I'm competent with a sword, but somehow I keep rolling ones, twos, and threes. Yeah. You know, that that sucks. So there is that element to consider in the mix as well. The fantasy yeah. of competence that we've talked about. I was going to say, just completely stepping away, that City of Mist solves this problem really effectively by basically two core functions. Firstly, the GM never rolls anything. It's all the players rolling right. for everything to determine like failure, the success, or partial D &D. success. And I love that partial success where mm -hmm. you you sort of have a hand in the narration of the game. So if your spell like kind of hits or for all intents and purposes does half damage, you get to describe kind of why it misfired and what the what the negative effects are as a result of that. Mm. I do enjoy like scaling DCs on ability checks. It's a bit harder to yeah. do on attack rolls, but kind of being like, oh, I make a history check. You might learn different things from a DC 15 versus like a DC 20. Um, the one I do, I do want to say, Daniel, as well, that I, I mostly agree with you. There is something that feels wrong at the heart of the player not getting to like roll dice. That does feel wrong, but I'm just also talking about what the other side is. I, I like Daniel's idea about replacing saving throws with ability checks based on skills. The, mm. the issue with that is then every spell needs to call out which ability skill the saving throw is, and you have to balance. Well, we have too many now that call for athletics. We need some for acrobatics. Oh, now everybody's taking athletics and acrobatics, and nobody is taking sleight of hand. Oh, so let's get some spells that sleight of hand is the save for. <laughs> yeah. It it turns into a a uh, quite uh, a bit of a nightmare. 
you have that with saving throws anyway, though, right? Like Dex and Wiz are like the king kind yeah, of skills. Yeah, but there's only six of them, though. <laughs> sure. All right, that's fair. Yeah. yeah, what's the saving throw for animal handling, you know, if you get trampled yeah. by a bull or something? I mean, I do agree with you. I do agree with you. I'm like, bring in more intelligent yeah. saving throws, but... Or charisma. Right. Like, yeah. I, I, for charm spells, I like to use charisma instead of wisdom because I feel like charisma is, yep. you know, that force that of force personality. Of personality. Jinx. Right, mm-hmm. Jinx. Yeah. Oh, my God. Did we just <laughs> yes. become best friends? We just um, became best friends. <laughs> um, the other thing I like about saving throws is you can use them to wig out the players. I've done it a couple of times where players are, like, really anticipating a trap and they're like, all right, I do a perception check or investigation, whatever it happens to be, and I'm like, the door doesn't appear to be trapped. And they're like, because oh, I've rolled a one or a two. So they go in, they open the door, and I say, all right, make a deck save. And they're like, I knew it. And uh, describe how, like, you fall on your ass because a chicken flies out from behind the door or, you know, like, kind of preempt that their character has a moment where they're so wound up <laughs> that they, um, you know, they, that they jump or get frightened or something. And oh, doing God. that with saving throws and getting them to roll the dice rather than rolling something in secret, I think, has a, a certain power to it um, that you couldn't do mm-hmm. otherwise. That's actually a really cool nice. idea, making people roll for types of events that don't just directly correlate to damage or success mm. or failure. Just like being spooked by a chicken that they didn't mm. know was there. Like, yeah. that doesn't do like 3d6 damage. It's it's a chicken. That's cool. I think, uh, I, think I did psychic we damage We have just invented once. chicken damage. <laughs> chicken damage. You take, <gasps> take six points of chicken damage. Um, we have time for Good one points. more question. This came in uh, from Shipping Law Lino on our Discord. Now, this is a big one, so uh, I'll quickly read through this. In my deep dive into the Castanellan lore, a number of questions have come up. The country is clearly Mediterranean or an Mediterranean amalgamation of combining in features of Spain, Portugal, North Africa, and the drier landscapes of Greece and Italy. Many of the similarities and differences of those places are well adapted by having the three subcultures that make up Castanellan as a whole. With all of that being said, Dale, what is your non-ice cream cold treat that you really enjoy during summer? Ooh, I'm so glad you asked. Pavlova! Pavlova. Okay. Excellent okay, question. That's fair. Is Pavlova is Pavlova an Australian thing only? I feel like I've heard uh, that. Australian New be Zealand, wrong. yeah. Right. Hmm. And my apologies to our US American friends over here because you're missing out. <laughs> Pavlova is pretty great. That that would probably be up there on my list. Logan, your favorite <laughs> summery treat apart from ice cream? A Long Island iced tea. Fair. What is a long? Is that just vodka and like? Fruit it's a drink? lot of different alcohols. <laughs> it's just um, vodka. Pretty just, much, just yeah. Pour a it lot in of there. vodka and a little <laughs> yeah, right. bit of food coloring to get that nice tint. Gotcha. No, it's it's a mix yeah. of different things that make it resemble just like an iced tea. I'm gotcha. I'm not big on sweets. Fair, fair. Uh, Sean, something you enjoy during summer that's not ice cream? Two Long Island iced teas, <laughs> or a double. Or, yes, a double. Though I love, there's a a cake that my wife's grandmother made. It's lemon or chocolate icebox cake. And you, it's a cake with many layers and you put it in the uh, freezer and you pull it out, cut a piece and it's cold and sweet and very delicious. Oh, hell yeah, that sounds great. What's that? That reminds me of. There's a cake that I don't. Again, I don't know if this is Australia centric or not. I can't think of the name of it, but basically, Brown I know cake. it as the cake you make when the cake you wanted to make goes wrong, and it's more <laughs> or less like sponge on the bottom and then jelly in the middle and then like cream on top. It's called a. Uh, somebody so, will know. So like trifle. But yeah, yeah, yeah. It's I like trifle. Yeah. I think that's exactly <laughs> yeah. what I'm thinking of. Yeah, and yeah. it's basically like the cake you wanted to make got burned, so you cut off all the edges I and then just it throw the, the worst sponge. Christmas dessert. <laughs> I love trifle. What's wrong with trifle? It's never as good as it should be. I got home one night with a full trifle from a Christmas party, kicked open the door and just said, I have trifle. And me and my housemates sat around with spoons, oh, eating it no straight way, out of the bowl. Really good. Yeah, it was great. It was a great time. I, uh, speaking I do, of great time. I do have to ask. What is pavlova? Because all I could think of is dog saliva. Uh. <laughs> okay, you know, you know meringue, right? Yes, I've heard. Of, I've heard right? of her. Yes, yes. 
It's like meringue, but you but it's like a cake worth of meringue, right? So the inside stays all gooey mm. and fluffy and light and mm. magnificent, mm. Um, like while mousse? only the outside shell becomes crispy. And then on the top, you nice. just lather it with cream and all sorts of fruits, kiwi fruit, strawberry, blueberries, all the fruits on the top of the pavlova, and it is the most magnificent thing in the world. It's, it does it's sound wonderful now that you like, describe it. Yeah. <laughs> It's kind of like Moose, Logan, but it's nothing like Moose at the same time. It's like the okay. interior is like if sugar was a cloud, but also it's yes. a little bit thicker. Oh, that's a great description, mm. but not like fairy floss. No, because fairy floss is like so stringy. Fairy floss is like hair. candy cotton? Yeah. No, I don't oh, think so. Um, cause cause fairy floss is cotton candy, candy cotton. Yeah, yeah, or yeah. candy floss if you're in the UK, but we call it fairy floss. But it's not so it, like it's, fairy floss. <laughs> it's in the middle in terms of density, mousse well, it's and like, like cotton candy. Yeah, because it's like gooey, but but it's Kinda not like wet. A, clouds yeah. aren't gooey. <laughs> <laughs> it's right, nice. It's really good. I, I, live, I live for pavlova, but I prefer pavlova without the cream and fruit on top. I just want the... Mm the meringue crust and the gooey inside. And I'm a happy. man of culture, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'll cook half a pavlova and then I'll just eat that. <laughs> um, speaking of a good time, this is sadly the end of this podcast. We have run out of time. Uh, so thank you very much for joining me. Uh, Logan Reese. thank you for stepping in uh, in absence of James Haight. Thank you, Dale Kingsmill, Sean Merwin. My name is Ben Byrne and we will see you all back for more Dessert Talk next week. Next week.